Army camps and bases often feature architecture worth preserving. One example is Camp Dodge, an Army National Guard training facility in Iowa. Its construction and facilities management staff won a Pentagon Award earlier this year for restoration of its 1907 gatehouse and perimeter. We get more now from Facilities and Management Director Colonel John Perkins. Colonel Perkins, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. And just tell us about Camp Dodge itself. There's some significance of it historically and to the state of Iowa. Camp Dodge is the only military facility in the state of Iowa. It is actually a state military facility currently. It was established in 1907. Our first building actually went in in 1909. In World War I, we were the 13th national cantonment to help build up the forces for World War I. I went back to the state, and we were again federalized in 1942. And then after World War II, we've been a state facility ever since. And where exactly in the state is it? So Camp Dodge is just north of Des Moines, which is right in the center part of the state. Got it. So there's Des Moines on one side and cornfields around the other three sides? Well, yes, it, it is Iowa. Yes, you were right. correct. Yeah, well, they make good corn out there. And you are the facilities director, but you're National Guard, so you've got kind of two hats, right, civilian and military? That's correct. So I'm a dual-status military technician, so GS-14 day-to-day. I'm also a colonel in the Army National Guard. And as with all federal technicians who are in the National Guard, our regulation requires us to wear the uniform. So we're pretty indistinguishable. All right, understood. And what happens there? And how large is the place? How many people come and go every day? What, what's, uh, give so us Camp a sense Dodge of... has about 5,000 acres, so it's not uh, large from a terrain standpoint, but we're between the third and fifth busiest post as far as the National Guard post and the uh, National Guard inventory. We regularly train between 350 to 400,000 soldiers a year. We have several activities here, such as the National Maintenance Training Center, a uh, center that, you know, does some combat simulation on the computers. And so there's a lot of soldiers that come through here, as well as Marines, Army Reserve, most of your reserve component in Iowa, because we have the only ranges in Iowa also, as well as we also help train some civilians, such as, or they use our ranges, such as law enforcement and police. Got it. And so there are quite a number of buildings and facilities you have to look after then. Yeah, so on Camp Dodge, we've got 375 facilities uh, on Camp Dodge alone. Golly, and some of them go back, you say, is the 1909 building still there? Yes, yes, the 1909 building is there. It was actually a powder house. It was uh, constructed by a tile with all non-sparking surfaces, so it goes back to that time frame. But the offense actually does date from 1937. So Okay, so this project we're talking about that won an award, the award was for what, sustainment and for what? Yeah, it was it was a restoration and a preservation of a cultural artifact. So, you know, we have both an environmental heritage we're very proud of here at Camp Dodge. We have a lot of species on Camp Dodge we take care of. We also have a lot of cultural artifacts. So in this particular case, this fence was built as part of the CCC, the Work Progress Administration, sure. the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1937. So these were people that did not have jobs. They brought them in. It was all done by hand labor. They learned a skill, learned a craft. And we thought it was worth preserving. It's not on the National Historical Register, per se, but it is Historical Register eligible. And what's very important to me is a lot of those young men that came and did this work, they later served in World War II. So we're talking about an artifact of the greatest generation. And the fence has 99 pillars, and these are not just wooden posts, are they? No, no, they're, they're not. So each pillar is about three feet by three feet square, about four feet tall, and they are made of Indiana limestone. 
about the inch to two inch thick pieces and they're laid in there and mortared in place. So 100% of it was handwork. To include the foundation, the foundation of the pillars were not poured in concrete we discovered during the restoration. They were actually bigger pieces of limestone all cemented by hand. Interesting. So some real craftsmanship there. We're speaking with Colonel John Perkins. He's Director of Construction and Facilities Management for the Iowa National Guard. And then in addition to restoring those pillars, you also had a gatehouse? Yeah, so the gatehouse was part of it. Uh, Very interesting. It had some hand-forged iron elements into it. It replaced a former gatehouse there off of what used to be the main entrance to Camp Dodge. And very looks almost like a little castle style. But uh, again, it was those uh, young men back in the 37 putting it all together. And what was the state of it when you decided to restore it? So it was solid. Some pillars had been hit by uh, cars that had gone off the road over the years. There was cracking. There was grass growing up in there. Rocks had split out of it. Mortar had fallen out of it. And really, it was really a decision of uh, letting such a cultural resource go or putting a little bit of money back into it to preserve it for the next generation. And what did it take to do the restoration? From a standpoint of work, they literally had to go back and do handwork. They had to cut out the stones, grind out mortar, replace stones interior to that, re-cement things using mortar that was the same color, cement on top of the same color to cap it, and then it was cleaned in an environmentally safe manner with a pH-neutral power wash and replaced some of the wood elements on it, restored like new. Wow, and this is true of the gatehouse also? That's correct. And were concrete foundations put under the pillars or did you just simply restore the bases that were there from the 30s? We restored the bases that were there. So we, in a large part, we dug down where we had to. But really, it, it, was, it needed to be repaired, but the stone, mortar, it lasts a long time. It was, it was really pretty solid, just those elements that had to be redone. Yeah, like your own pyramids right there on Camp Dodge. And uh, After this restoration, they will outlast me. <laughs> and who did the work? It was a, a company, uh, I, I can't remember the name, unfortunately, out of Wisconsin. They did this restoration work. A local architect and engineering firm named Snyder Associates did this. And it's very gratifying to us because the company came in and they hired a lot of local labor and taught some skills when they put this back in there. And again, it was very much a labor-intensive process. Sure. And how did you pay for it? So this was a combination of uh, federal funds and state funds to do this, which is pretty common in uh, a National Guard opposed to have that mixture of funds. So there is federal money, meaning that the Pentagon at some point ultimately feels that this type of activity to preserve these heritage sites is worth it. Yeah, it is, because it, it, it does represent our post. If you go through a, a military facility, whether it's a Fort Leavenworth, you'll see some history preserved. Now, that being said, we do have to make some hard decisions on whether we maintain a building, whether it's culturally relevant is one factor, whether it's architecturally relevant or it's really worth restoring. We have had some cases where we've had some World War II buildings that were temporary World War II buildings that we just tore down some last year that they're neither architecturally relevant and uh, they had just exceeded their lifespan. So we want to spend our money frugally, but there are uh, worthwhile to preserve some things. Yeah, it's like the Navy Annex in Washington. I think it was supposed to be torn down in the 50s, and it lasted up until about the 80s till they finally removed those buildings. I guess they were right. historic in the minds of the people that had worked there, but as structures, they weren't terribly significant. And as a National Guard base, as a member of our community, what I found is during this restoration, this has hit the community newspapers. I received a lot of comments in the community. People have stopped me. So it's also an icon of the community. So we have to be, as a federal member of a community, 
we have to be very, very aware of that also. Yes, because you said that sometimes a car has hit the stone pillars over the years, which means there's a community and roads and traffic going by Camp Dodge, so the people maybe locally have adopted it. That is correct. We have a great relationship with, with, with our community, and we consider ourselves a part of the community and, and as well as an asset. And what's next on your list to possibly restore and refresh? So we're finishing up a multi-multi-year restoration of uh, one of the only two existing World War II induction hospitals left in the United States. While we're restoring it the outside to look what it looked like with the appropriate windows and the appropriate roofing. However, inside are the most modern classrooms to train our soldiers and airmen that you've ever seen. So we believe we can accomplish both maintain that readiness, reuse a structure without having to build a new one, which is good for the environment also, but preserve the heritage on on the outside. Do you have any really nice cannons or some old maybe Army Air Corps aircraft there too? Uh, Absolutely. If you look up the news, we just flew back an uh, F-86. Wow. A Chinook helicopter picked it up off Camp Dodge, flew to a paint facility in the Air National Guard in Sioux City, and uh, just delivered it back on post and is now back on display in all its glory. Excellent. Well, sounds like you got a great operation going out there. One of these days, I'll have to ride out. Colonel John Perkins is Director of Construction and Facilities Management for the Iowa National Guard. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required 
black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or 
maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.